We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, our host Katie Skillington is interviewing David Ash from Geimer Bailey Architects. David shares how his experience of transitioning from being a building surveyor into becoming an architect contributed to his role helping graduates enter the real world of architecture practice as lead of cultural engagement at Geimer Bailey Architects. Let's jump in. Thanks for joining me today, David. Uh, you're welcome, Katie. It's good to be here. So we have people who listen from around the world. So just to start off with, would you like to introduce yourself to them? Uh, yeah, I'm a Glaswegian. I grew up in the west of Scotland and I studied building surveying, graduated and then qualified just before arriving in Australia. I've been a, an architect, registered architect since the mid-90s and I now work for Gamma Bailey. I've worked for Gamma Bailey on and off since graduating actually and currently I've worked for them for 12 years as an architect and I'm also a senior associate and the lead of their equitable housing sector. Nice. So today we're going to talk about how we can support people in offices, particularly those who are in the graduate phase or maybe younger professionals that have a little bit less experience and I think it's a, a, I think a good place to start is your entry point into the profession? Because you said that you studied building surveying and then you went and did architecture. How did that transition occur? Yeah, so in Scotland, I graduated as a building surveyor before coming to Australia. Building surveying in the UK is a little different or quite different to Australia. We are not certifiers. It's more of a, a building professional which who are involved with reviews and assessments of building, offering advice on extensions, alterations. So this kind of a little bit, kind of crosses over very slightly into architecture. And when I arrived in Australia, there wasn't such a thing as a building surveyor. Nobody mm. really knew what a building surveyor was. So I found my way into architecture by working in architecture practices, where I was able to use the skills I had from building surveying. And during that time, I thought, well, I kind of always wanted to be an architect. So this might have been an opportunity to, to do that. So I started studying part-time at QIT, which is now QUT in Brisbane. And at the same time, I was working for an architect's practice because I had background experience. I was working at quite a high level while studying. And I found that the two were kind of not compatible for me. And I know there's lots of people who do that. They work in study at the same time and come out as very good architects but for me it just wasn't working uh, so I decided to stop studying and decided to focus on working and quite quickly I realized that wasn't really what I wanted to do but it was like a fork in the road you know I had to decide I wasn't I was either going to be an architect uh, which would have meant leaving and studying or I was going to continue to work and that was kind of the end of the architecture ambitions. So I left the practice and went to study full-time at University of Queensland and graduated in the mid-90s. And uh, I think the things for me that came out of that were that often there's choices you make, you know, at some point in your career which sends you down that path. 
And it's really important not to be, not to go for the most appealing one at the time. Think about it because if I had gone for the, the one that was best paid, was working, to, it was least stressful, I would have kept working and not achieved. I wouldn't have become an architect. Uh, what was your graduate experience like? Did you get a job straight out of university? Yeah, I, because I had experience, I mm. was able to quite quickly find work. And in fact, I started working for, in my year out, the, the degree is, was five years with a year out and you're expected to work in industry mm. during that time. So I worked for Gamma Bailey at that time. Oh, wow. Uh, which was really interesting. At that time, it was Geimer and Bailey, the original owners, were still active. And it was a really great learning experience. When I graduated, I started back at Geimer Bailey again. So I, I kind of had set the job up, and it was possible to do that at that time. And it was a practice I wanted to work for. They wanted to have me working for them, so I went back there. Mm. So you were a graduate at GBA, and now you're helping graduates out at GBA. What's that full circle experience like? <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it's interesting. I I left GBA late 90s and kids and raised a young family and worked as a sole practitioner for a bit. And at the same time, I did some teaching. So I started to get into teaching at that point. So kind of from my whole career, my whole architectural career, I've been involved on and off with teaching. And that means contact with students mm. and not necessarily graduates but students on their way to being graduates i found that from that i kind of developed an interest on the way students were treated you know when they came out of institutions and i i guess being a more mature graduate when i joined gamer bailey i was also kind of aware of the pitfalls that you could find yourself in if as a graduate so that that experience has essentially motivated you to lead, my understanding is kind of lead the the support of graduates at GBA at the moment. Is that, is that mm. correct? Yeah, that, that's probably, it's probably looser than that. Mm. We, are, we don't have a formal program currently and it's a work in progress, but we have interested individuals within the practice and I'm one of them and, and sometimes I can be a bit pushy <laughs> see something that <laughs> needs good. to be done. <laughs> and uh, along with a couple of other pushy people, I've, we have we have started to introduce a structure for graduates coming into the practice because we can't really have, we think at the moment we have six graduates working for us, various levels of experience. So it's kind of necessary mm. that, that we know how to deal with the graduates and give them what they need to have and also what their expectation might be. What types of things do you do you do either as an individual or as GBA to support the experiences of, of graduates and younger, less experienced professionals? Yeah, well, as I said, as it's a work in progress for myself, my role up until quite recently has been more advisory on projects. But more recently I've become I've worked more directly with graduates on a couple of small projects. And it's uh I can I guess I've become aware of what they don't know. And that they they don't know what they don't know. Mm. And having worked at Uni of Melbourne recently, I feel that I've got quite a good understanding of how graduates emerge from institutions. It really interests me that graduates are, you know, they've, they've done an, an intense period of study. They are really good thinkers. Usually, they're imaginative. They're encouraged to be 
innovative in their thinking. And the kind of the, the graduate employment process is almost the opposite of that mm. in some ways. So it's all about, I guess, systems and Revit. And, and so I, my view is that the programme that we have should take in a, into account the, the aspects that graduates bring to a practice as well as what the practice can give to graduates. So you mentioned previously that you've you've been involved with teaching and academia. Do you currently teach at the moment? And do you feel like that uh, if you've been teaching for a while that students and graduates have kind of changed over time or is it pretty much remain the same in the sense of what they don't know and what they need when they go out into the workforce? Yeah, I'm not currently teaching at the moment. I taught just before COVID mm. and I haven't taught since then. The graduates now do seem different and I guess that's to be expected from when I graduated and from my earlier experience in teaching. I've taught in interior design programs and in architecture and I've taught in Toronto and in Australia. Toronto was just, just for a year. So I've kind of got an experience of different different locations and different types of courses. And broadly speaking, I think my overall impression is that students, there's a spectrum of students, obviously, I believe they are, they're those which see the course or the, the program, the architectural program that they're, that they're attending as an opportunity to learn and think and experiment and have a good time, which is great. And there are those which at the other end, which see it as an opportunity to enter a career and are trying to find out what they need to do to enter that career successfully. So at each end of those is probably that also relates to the perceived employability mm. of graduates. So at the, at the imaginative investigative end, there's less likelihood that they'll have familiarity with Revit. You know, they won't have invested a lot of time in learning Revit. And at the other end, there is a a concern that they have to have Revit or something similar. So the, it seems to have moved towards the Revit end, mm. in my view, recently. And that's probably because of employability and uh, competition for jobs. Previously, we were less reliant, I think, on the tools that we're using today. So it, there was less need to be seen as being skilled in, a, in the use of particular tools it was more in the skills you gained in the area of design that you'd studied. And that's probably shifted, that shifted the way students see the industry. Mm. When you're looking to hire someone who is a, a graduate or a less experienced professional, what kind of things are you looking for? Yeah, well, I, I guess if we think about the continuum, I, I'm an advocate of the imaginative thinker. It's the thing that people learn to do when they're at school uh, and it's what needs to be nurtured and it's kind of what what a lot of us bemoan we miss out on in our careers you know we lose that imaginative aspect so that's got to be nurtured and encouraged and the an interest in life and I'm talking about graduates now but this yeah. kind of applies to everyone yeah an interest in life you know a broad interest in life uh, a curiosity and a desire to not necessarily to follow the cues of you know the practice to be able to speak for themselves and have an opinion and to be able to substantiate that opinion and usually and a, and a good body of work and an interest in, in, in design and architecture and usually if that's the 
that's what people bring to an interview, it normally means that they can pick up the tools of the trade, you know, quite quickly, so they can learn Revit quite quickly. And that to me is more important than someone who comes in and claims to be able to to work well in Revit or in some other platform. One of the things about architectural practice is this need to continuously learn and professional development. For younger professionals or less experienced professionals, sometimes that can be a little bit daunting, particularly if they've just come out of a university degree because they have an element of learning fatigue. How do you motivate and encourage the graduates and younger professionals or less experienced professionals in your firm to invest in continuous learning and professional development at an early stage of their career? And do you think that's important? Yeah, I think it's important that that happens, that they develop an interest, but the interest is often there. It's more how that might be accommodated within the practice. Obviously, as a young graduate, an inexperienced graduate, then you know, there's, there's lots to learn. There's lots of basic stuff to learn. And continuous education that allows you to do that is really important. And it's not the most glamorous thing. Mm. It's, uh, it's always better to learn about construction on site rather than listening to somebody talk about it in a CPD. Mm. But I think if the, the culture of the studio is modelling or developed to want to have continuous development and to encourage continuous development, it helps. I mean, it sort of depends on the individual about their appetite. But uh, if the culture of the studio is values continuous development and encourages it, then I think that's really important. One thing I want to ask you about is pigeonholing. Uh, yeah, pigeonholing. So when I was going through registration and going through the APA process, I met a bunch of other graduates of architecture who were working at different firms and we were sharing our experiences and the kind of projects we were working on. And I was quite lucky. I was working in small practice at the time. And so, you know, fast paced, lots of different projects, sometimes not always getting to DD or CD, but, you know, exposure to lots of different clients and typologies. But I remember learning of some experiences from other graduates who had been pigeonholed onto single projects for three, four years, or the firm had discovered that they're really good at 3D visualization and that was the majority of the experience that they had. I sometimes also have ex-students come to me and with that experience within their firms. And my advice to them is to kind of advocate for themselves. My question to you is, is it just the responsibility of that person, the graduate, that's being pigeonholed? Or is it also a responsibility of the firm to recognise that they play a role in the continuing education and development of that person's skills? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I understand what you're saying, although I thought when you talked about pigeonholing, it may have been something different. <laughs> I've experienced it myself during my career, partially because I kind of entered the workforce maybe more experienced than some and you tend to do what you're good at I guess practices again there's a spectrum of practices and there's a commercial concern with employing people obviously want to employ people who we feel are capable of doing tasks we need them to do uh, and if a graduate or a young practitioner is particularly good in one area it's really easy to utilize them in that area uh, because it's cost effective and it's good for the practice and they may be very effective in that area so it's uh, it's a big benefit but it's something i think it's something that really 
needs to be avoided at all times in your career or, or, or it's an awareness that needs to be, the practitioner needs to have an awareness that they're being pigeonholed and either accept it or not. Certainly the, uh, the graduate can advocate for themselves, but not all graduates are capable of advocating for themselves. Mm -hmm. There's that power structure or power balance issue where graduates may feel that they are being pigeonholed but can't do anything about it. So in that instance, it really is up to the practice to have an awareness of pigeonholing and not be not be over-utilising st staff or graduates in a particular area. Even if the, and it's not just graduates, it's mm. everyone, it's also your career, it's a risk. Even if the person is apparently happy doing that, if, it's, if it can be seen that it's not particularly good for their development, I think we have our responsibility as as employers and as mentors that we at least point it out, you know, and give options. Uh, so yeah, I I think it's a it's an issue that needs to be faced. I think it's probably a problem in the industry that people get pigeonholed. Advocacy works for some people because they are strong people and they they will choose what is best for them. But we also as as employers and as managers of practices need to be aware of it and, and work with people who are not as powerful. Mm. You briefly touched on mentoring just then. Do you currently mentor people within your firm? And second to that, do you currently have a mentor? Yeah, I personally mentor people within the practice. Geimer Bailey has a mentor program for all the, all the people in the studio and we each mentor different people and I have a mentor within the practice. I sometimes think, and I think that's a really good system. I mm. think it's great to be able to mentor younger, less experienced people and give them the benefit of your advice or just be able to listen. It, the, the mentor program we have is not specific to technical mentoring or career mentoring. It's kind of a general mentoring program. I sometimes think it would be useful to have maybe mentors in specific areas, you know, like construction, documentation, Revit, you know, it's, it becomes a bit unwieldy if you have too many of them. But I think a practice mentor might be quite useful, but I've got to work on that. The external, the idea of an external mentor, I think is really interesting. I think as you move through practice and maybe you become more senior, the people who within the practice are able to mentor you, maybe maybe not the most appropriate. So I think an external mentor is probably a really good idea. I think it's good to have someone outside the practice who you can talk to. I don't have one, but I think it would be really beneficial. Mm. I had an external mentor when I was a grad, when I was working in a small practice. I was part of a, I think it was called Constructing Mentors Program. This was a very long time ago, which shows my age. But having someone that was at a different practice mentoring me was mm. really, really excellent because there wasn't the baggage of what was occurring within the practice I was in. And it was more just talking about the practice of architecture and developing my skills in, a, in quite a neutral, unbiased way. It didn't turn into a whinging session because they didn't know anyone that I worked with and vice yeah. versa. So I think, yeah, an external mentor would be excellent. I should get one now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can see if I can find one as well. But the, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting, the baggage that you have within a practice or the dynamics within a practice certainly potentially restricts or influences what 
the mentor discussions. And it's you've got to be quite focused to stay separate to that, mm. I think. And of course, if the person you're mentoring wants to go in that direction, that's their choice. So, yeah, I think very beneficial, I think, to have an external mentor. Might pivot the conversation towards studio culture now, which I think is a pretty interesting topic now that we're moving into an era, I don't want to say post-COVID, but time after COVID and we're all returning to the office or practices are starting to embrace more hybrid working policies. What does good studio culture look like to you? We've recently had to think a bit about that. I've been thinking a lot about it over the last few years, I guess, with COVID and it's been very changeable. You know, as we've moved through COVID, I originally thought, you know, the, the working remotely solution was really good. And of course, as COVID progressed and the more we worked remotely, the less good it became. Mm. And the engagement within the studio when it comes to the, you know, the function of designing and cooperating on work is really doesn't work at all unless you're in the studio. So the, the, the idea of bringing people back into the studio and encouraging a culture where people want to come back into the studio is really important, I think, and very salient at the moment. Our culture is, we, we've quite quickly grown as a practice and our culture has gone through various stages during that growth. And I would say at this point we are we are settling into a, probably a comfortable number and the culture that number includes a number of new people haven't been part of the continuum. Culturally, my view is that our culture or a, a culture, if it's left on its own, it, it will still develop, but it may not be the one you want. So you've actively got a direct culture and not everyone wants to do that. So there are certain people within the practice who may be really interested or enthusiastic about developing a culture. Naturally, around architecture, we, we have architects and interior designers and landscape architects. So it's a design studio. That's, that's what we do. So the culture should revolve around design and talking about design, encouraging people to talk about all aspects of design and having it as a, a core of how we operate is important to the culture, if not the culture itself. And in order to be able to talk about things, it's uh, it's also kind of pertinent to the moment because beside COVID, we've had this rise of, I guess, the post-truth era where opinions matter, no matter how extreme they are. So I think it's really important in practice that we, we recognise the value of rigour and intellectual honesty in practice. And we learn how to, to be able to talk honestly with the other people in the practice. So for me, that's a really important aspect that I would like to develop within Gamma Bailey and already exists to some extent, but it's always got to be encouraged. Mm. I think in, it's something that happens in programs, architecture programs. I mean, there's this honesty, honesty of criticism of work, sometimes too honest. Mm. But it's also, also drifts into opinion as well. So, but I think there's a familiarity with that kind of environment when you're at, when you're attending a program. And if that can be maintained within the practice, I think it'd be really beneficial. And currently it tends not to be. I think it's a lot of opinion. It's often, you know, it's, it reflects, you know, the wider, wider culture that, you know, there's opinion, quite odd views. Uh, so I think the idea of having a, a rigorous 
intellectually honest culture where people feel comfortable, you know, airing their, their views and can substantiate them is really healthy. That idea of truthfulness and having robust, truthful dialogues about what you're doing, I can imagine some people are comfortable doing that. But if I think back to my own experiences when I just entered practice, I probably wouldn't have been as forthright with my opinions. So thinking about that, how do you believe firms can better ensure everyone feels comfortable and welcome to offer their ideas and opinions, regardless of where they sit in the practice hierarchy or experience ladder? I've thought about that a lot recently as well. And the truthfulness aspect is really important, uh, really, really important. And it's got, but it's got to be coupled with, as you said, an environment where people feel comfortable and prepared to offer their opinion or their their argument. I think about it as kindness, so truthful and truthfulness and kindness, and that's you know that's well recognised in psychology that you know a, a, a safe, kind environment will encourage people to express their opinions, feel comfortable expressing their opinions, even if the opinion's quite different from the prevailing one in the practice or in the environment. So I think to try and create, to aim to create, and it's kind of quite difficult to do because you can you can veer off into areas where you're trying to accommodate everyone. And of course, it's, you know, no one is accommodated under those circumstances. So it's quite difficult to be rigorous and truthful and kind. But I think without the kindness, it's really hard to, to have the, the honesty. Mm. And naturally there are, again, there's a spectrum of, people who some just naturally don't want to express opinions and they might never do that. But uh, I, I think a truthful environment or a kind environment can, it's probably the best opportunity to allow that to happen if it's going to happen. When it comes to studio culture, do you think that it's cultivated from top down or bottom up or do you think everyone in the organisation has a responsibility? I think everyone has a responsibility in the practice or in an environment. I mentioned before that I th- culture, if it's left, will develop on its own. That can be good or bad. If it's directed or if it's embraced by interested individuals, then it can develop in the direction you, it's desirable for the practice. And that development would come from leaders within the practice. And those the leaders can be any level. Uh, there's people who lead from... There's graduates who arrive in the studio who you can tell instantly are leaders, you know, and they take on a leadership role. Uh, And, you know, they, you know, they naturally change the culture of the practice just by doing that. And that has to be recognised. It shouldn't be stifled. Uh, But similarly, leadership comes from the top levels, you know, and sometimes that is just not an approval, but it's an endorsement that may be all that's required from the upper levels. That it's okay for, you know, graduates or fairly new practitioners to voice opinions and to change culture, to see where it, if it's necessary to change it. So I think, yeah, anywhere in a practice, cultural change can arise. What do you think are some of the benefits of hiring a graduate for a practice? Someone or someone who's less experienced? Like what are the good things that people who are less experienced in graduate spring? Yeah, I guess we're talking about experience and practice sense. Mm. Uh, graduates bring lots or a significant amount of experience from the programs they've attended over quite a long time and they're quite intense. Mm. They bring an imagination and an approach that 
might be absent from practice. So it's recognising where that can be used and the benefits of having that. Graduates typically are young people. Mm. So, and that's in itself is refreshing to have a different viewpoint. It's fun to work with graduates. It's a way of the practice to connect with, I guess, the the education process or academia in a way because the graduates create, in some ways create, and if they're allowed to, create a connection with other graduates and with often with the school that they've, they've graduated from. So there's lots of opportunities, but it's, it's really refreshing. If graduates are, are allowed to experiment in practice, I think it's only beneficial to the practice. And then conversely to the best, what are some of the most challenging aspects of hiring graduates or less experienced professionals? Well, I think, I think this is almost the single most challenging aspect is that graduates are not experienced in practice. And we, as practitioners, we need to recognise that. Graduates are, they are encouraged to learn to think in a, in a way that's innovative and interesting and use their imagination. It's, they're not people who are skilled in the tools of production. I think the assumption that that's the case is a hurdle to, to be avoided mm. uh, by practice. So by, by recognising the strength of graduates, I think is a, is a really important thing and how graduates can best be utilised. What do you think is the most challenging thing facing contemporary architectural practice at the moment? Thing or issue? Well, there's three big ones, I guess. Do you know that kind of like three elephants in the room? We've got climate and the housing crisis and we have an appropriate settlement with our First Nations people. And for me, climate is a biggie. It kind of waxes and wanes depending on... I guess what the current news story is, but I don't think it's something we can we can afford to avoid as responsible practitioners. Uh, the The housing crisis is something that really interests me, and I'm kind of decided to make it the focus of this aspect, this time of my career. And again, it's not something we can avoid. You know, we cannot ignore that. We have a as design professionals, we have an obligation to be involved in that. And coming to a settlement with uh, First Nations people is a broad community issue. But, you know, as architects and practitioners, we are directly involved with First Nations people in many of our projects. And we can, we are in a position to advocate and to do something about it. And what do you think is the most promising idea or opportunity that you see for contemporary architectural practice? Well, it's probably the problems that we face. <laughs> True, that yeah. <laughs> you know, the the you know we can embrace those. There's there's we might not be the best outside formal institutions like the AIA at cooperating, but I think there's huge opportunities for for architects to cooperate to be advocates uh, in those areas that previously spoke of. That to me is a, a big opportunity, and it would be. Uh, it's also an obligation, but I think we've got power. But with the, that power comes from collective action. Sounds says Citizen Smith. <laughs> <laughs> power to the people. Uh, so yeah, I think if we act collectively, we we can be, you know, we can be strong advocates. That was a really fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for joining me today, David, and all the best with your future career. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our host, Katie Skillington, and to our guest in this episode, David Ash from Gaima Bailey Architects. Thank you so much for sharing your stories about office culture engagement and we're looking forward to seeing more of your projects in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Katie Skillington and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.